Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast. We are a Bible-based church out of Peterborough, Canada, and together we are on a mission to reach people who are far from Christ and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. Over the next 10 weeks, we are walking through the New Testament book of James. Its pages are full of practical wisdom and encouragement for us to live out our faith in a way that works. If you'd like to hear hard-hitting truth that will challenge you, open up your Bible and get ready to dig into the timeless teachings of James. In the first 18 verses, we will discover the importance of staying power. What use is our faith if it doesn't last? We will learn to embrace trials, gain wisdom, and resist temptation so that we can grow to maturity in the faith. With that, let's turn it over to Pastor Nathan and part one of our series, The Book of James. Awesome. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you here today. Uh, as you uh, might have guessed and Todd already mentioned, today we're kicking off a message series in which over the next 10 weeks we're going to be walking through an entire New Testament book or letter. It's called the letter of James. And uh, you'll find it at the, at the back of your Bible. I'm going to try this morning to cover all of that stuff that Diane just read for you. And there's a lot. I mean, we could spend the first three or four verses, we could do an entire message on it. So I'm going to be moving quickly. Uh, if you have something to take notes, please feel free to do so. You can take notes on your phone. I won't judge. Uh, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it up. Uh, one of the things I love to do when I'm reading and studying the Bible is actually making notes in the margin, underlining, circling, highlighting. And the reason why is because if I hear something and I'm like, wow, that's something I didn't see before, uh, uh, an idea, an inspiration, I like to notate it. So the next time I'm reading through, it's like, Oh, it just brings it all back. And so I find that to be very helpful. I want to encourage you to do that. Um, the first service, I think I preached for nearly an hour. So we'll, uh, we'll try to speed it up a little bit for you guys and gals. This is great. So uh, today we're going to be looking at, as I said, uh, the letter to uh, written by James. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you might assume, because James is at the back of the... You can see my Bible's open. It's at the back. Uh, there's only a little bit of stuff afterwards. You might assume that it's... One of the later books to be written because you might assume that the books are organized chronologically. In other words, they were put in the Bible based on when they were written, and that's not the case. Uh, you may or may not know this, but the Bible is actually organized uh, by uh, groups of books. And so in the New Testament, you have these 27 books. The first five are actually history. They tell the life of Jesus and the early church. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. Then the next segment is actually organized by Paul's letters. First, his letters to churches. Second, his letters to individuals. And then it's organized by letters to other people. And then finally, prophecy. This is much like a library. If you went to a library and you were looking for a book, you wouldn't look for a book written in 1982. You'd, you'd ask, I'm looking for a business book, and they would take you to a business section, and then you could find it. Well, the, the, the Bible is actually organized in this same way, into categories. And what's interesting about this is that once they're in these categories, so if Paul's letters are actually written, uh, and they're organized by longest to shortest. I know, I didn't pick that, but it actually makes it really interesting when you realize that they weren't written in this sequence, uh, but how they're organized is important. And so you'll see James is towards the back of the Bible, it's in that group of other letters, uh, but it is actually, uh, historians believe, it is one of the earliest documents to be written in the New Testament. And so James was one of the first documents to be circulated amongst the early church after Jesus' resurrection. So it's extremely important, and I just wanted to kind of highlight that for you. Uh, again, over the next 10 weeks, we'll be diving into some different facts and learning together. So uh, what we'll do is we'll just, we'll just open up and look in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, we'll just stop on the first word, James. 
And the first question we're going to have before we dive into what James has to say is, who is this James? You might assume, like this would be logical to assume, that James was one of the disciples of Jesus. And three particular disciples were closest to Jesus, uh, Peter, James, and John. And Peter wrote some letters that are in the New Testament, and so did John. So you'd assume this one was written by the other guy, James. Historians do not believe that James the Apostle is the one who wrote this, but in fact, uh, it is attributed to James, the brother of Jesus. I should rather say the half-brother of Jesus, because uh, Mary was impregnated as a virgin and gives birth to the Messiah, the Son of God, but then Mary and Joseph have other children. And we know this because in the Gospels, Jesus is preaching, his disciples are around, the crowds are there, and Mary, his mom, would show up tagging along his younger brothers with her to come and see Jesus and hear him. And so uh, they call him James the Just. That's just kind of a nickname that the early church had for for James, the, the brother of Jesus, James the Just. In, in John's Gospel, there's this, this passage that we'll show you. And uh, in John's Gospel, it says, For not even his brothers believed in him. So Jesus is preaching. His mom shows up. Probably had some home bacon for him. And she brings brothers, and they're all listening to what Jesus is saying, and they did not believe. They're like, big bro, he's off his rocker. Maybe they were thinking that. But they're looking at Jesus, and they're like, there's no way he is who he claims to be. They don't believe in him. And then, of course, you know, Jesus dies, and, and he's buried. And I'm guessing that when Jesus was crucified and put in a grave, that his family turned up. Is that a safe assumption? If someone in your family, an older brother, passes, you're, you're there. And I imagine his brother saw him wrapped, saw him put in the tomb. And then, of course, what we celebrate at Easter, Jesus rises from the dead. And in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he actually says that, that Jesus appeared to his disciples and to James. So he appeared to his brother, like, hey, I'm back. And this, this obviously is, is quite interesting because in Acts chapter 1, we have uh, the early church after Jesus ascends to heaven. They're all meeting in an upper room praying and waiting for the Spirit. They're going to go out into the whole world and share the message of Jesus' resurrection. And it says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves, the disciples were there, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, not to be confused with other Marys, and his brothers. So Jesus' brothers who didn't believe in him in the beginning of John, now not only believe, but they're praying with the disciples and become a vital part of the New Testament church. In fact, one of Jesus' other brothers is Jude, and he writes that letter. So anyway, so we have Jesus' brothers now actively involved. Uh, Acts chapter 15, you can read about it uh, through the week. Acts chapter 15, there's the Jerusalem Council many years later. Paul and Barnabas are now preaching, and people who are not Jews are believing in Jesus and trusting Him. The church has grown beyond Jewish people. And there's this big debate, and, and, and Paul and Barnabas come to the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, and at this council, guess who it is that stands up and represents the council? James, the brother of Jesus. James the Just. And what's so amazing about this is, like, if I was writing it, this is probably how I would write it. James, brother of Jesus. Now, if you've got your Bible open, and some of you do, you're going to say, that's not what it says. That's because I'm reading from the Nathan Blay version. All right, you've got to watch those little letters mean something. This is not, this is not what James, the brother of Jesus, said. I would say that because I would be like, hey, I'm the brother of God. You should listen to what I have to say. I'm probably right. James does not take this approach at all, which says so much. He says this instead. 
He says, James, a servant. This, this Greek word uh, in the original language is better translated slave of God. Slave of God. And not, not of big bro, of the Lord Jesus Christ. James isn't like, listen to me, I'm an elder. Listen to me, everyone in the council does. He says, listen to me, I'm a slave to God and my brother is the Lord. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And, and you have to ask yourself the question, what happened to James from not believing in his brother to being willing to give his life, which he ends up giving his life, and leading the church? What happened between this guy who didn't believe and this guy who absolutely is a servant? Something changed, and I'll tell you what it is. He met the risen Savior. And a question I have for, for those of you listening today is, have you met the risen Savior? Because it changes everything. You can, you can read the Bible and you can know what it says. You can have your head full of information and theology, but until you meet Jesus, and when you meet Jesus, it, it changes everything. It, it changes your view on life. It changes how you respond. It changes everything. And so James is, is a different guy. Next we see who he's writing to, and it says this in, in the next, next part of the passage. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. James, his priority was for Jews. He was thinking about Jewish people, not Gentile people, which most of us would be Gentiles. He was concerned about the Jews who had trusted in Jesus and who were spread out throughout the Roman Empire, and he writes this letter to encourage them in their faith and in their Christianity. Okay, so we have the author, next image, we have an author, and James the Just, we have the audience, Christian Jews. And I want to take a minute at the last part of verse 1, which says this, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes, so we know who, we know who he's writing to. This is it. Greetings. In other words, Hello. That's it. They may go, okay, you're not thinking about it, but when you read most of the letters in the New Testament, it's like grace and peace to you, and don't you know how much God loves you, and let me tell you some good news, and then we're going to get down to business afterwards. So there's all this nice stuff. James, he gets right down to business. And so essentially what we're learning about him is something about his approach, right? So James the just, his approach is direct and straight to the point. That wasn't supposed to come up yet. Let me give you a little bit of context for this. Um, how, many have you, how many of you have seen uh, the show America's Got Talent? Yeah. So when America's Got Talent, people come on the stage and they do their act, right? So the lady's going to sing. Ah! She's singing. Wah, wah, wah. We need to finish it. Right? She, she comes out and she's singing off tune. And, of course, there's four judges. And the first judge is usually the enthusiast. And they're going to find something positive to say no matter what. And it's like, I just loved your energy. And then, of course, you know it's always going to come to the last person, which is our man, Simon Cowell. Now, Simon Cowell is direct. And he's not going to beat around the bush. He's going to tell you what he thinks. And usually, you know, if it's not good, he'll just say, don't quit your day job. That was terrible. Please leave. And as an audience, you're listening and you're thinking to yourself, that's harsh, but it's kind of right. There's a part of you that's like, ooh, that's hard, but I like it. Okay? And, and so I, I, you know, I used Photoshop to impose his face on James and Justin. It wasn't really a good picture of James anyways. But the point I was trying to make was this, that James has this, and when you read this letter, it's biting. You, you, you guys are all going to be quiet in 20 minutes when I'm getting through this sermon. You're going to be like, man, that's hard. That's heavy. It's just hard hitting. It's like every other verse is like, stop being a hypocrite. Don't do that. And then say this and don't be like that. And it's like, boom, boom, boom. That's why I like this letter. 
There's no fluff. He's just like, let's get to it, right? So James, slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, hello, and he's going to go right to work. So just be prepared. Enjoy. Enjoy the ride, okay? Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, my sisters, church, when you meet trials, difficulties of various kinds. I don't know about you, but I don't typically get excited and happy when I have hard times, difficulty, opposition. Do you? This is where he chooses to start this incredible letter. It's like, get happy when things are going wrong, when things are hard, when things are difficult. Now, before we dive into why he says this, I want to talk about the word behind this. Now, if you're reading a King James Version, this won't say trials, it'll say temptations. And that's because the word used in the original Greek language has two meanings. Did you know that some words have two meanings? And you have to decide which way, right? Is it desert, like a place full of sand, or is it they left me behind? They deserted me, right? So there's the same word. You have to look at the context. To go, what? Uh, the word fine. I found that the word fine can have multiple meanings. I learned this when I got married. And I asked my wife, how are you doing? She's like, I'm fine. And I'm like, oh, great. But it wasn't great. I was going to pay for it later because that was the other fine, but I didn't know the difference. So you have to look at the context, okay? Glad to see you guys are awake. You got to look at the context. And there's two ways this word can be interpreted. The first way is difficult situations, circumstances that happen to you. You get sick. You, you have to claim bankruptcy. Someone who you thought was with you leaves you. This would be a trial. This would be, that's a word, a meaning for the word temptation. The other meaning is the one that you would be more familiar with. And that's when like you're on a diet and someone's offering you chocolate and chips. And you're like, stop tempting me to do something I don't want to do. And so both of those meanings are true. Uh, this translation, we're in the English Standard Version, actually translates the Greek word into trials because that's exactly what James is talking about. Fortunately for us, about 10 verses later, he's actually going to talk about the other kind of trial, which would be the temptations and the enticement to sin. Okay, you guys with me? So James says, get happy when this happens, when you're going through difficult times. Unfortunately, a lot of people grew up in church or became Christians because someone came along and said, if you follow Jesus, your life will be better than it would be otherwise. And there are definitely some, there's truth to that. Your life is better. You have hope and peace and joy and assurance. Uh, but it doesn't mean that everything in your life will go smoothly. Like if you love Jesus, you'll never get sick. If you love Jesus, your friends will never turn on you. Nobody ever said that. In fact, Jesus himself said, in this life, you will have trials tribulations, difficulties. He's like, he's telling his disciples, get ready. There's going to be hard days. I want you to be prepared. People don't like me and they attack me. And I'm the son of God. I'm perfect. So you're going to have some problems. And he tried to warn his disciples and let them know. And what we have to understand is that the difference between Christians and non-Christians isn't that everything goes smooth, but it's not about what we face, but it's actually how we face it. And this is what James is going to talk about. As those who are under the lordship of Jesus, we're going to respond differently to difficult situations than people would. And that's because we know something. And that's because we understand something significant. Now, what are these trials? What are these difficulties? Well, you know, I heard someone say there's two things in life you can't avoid, death and taxes. And in this life, we will, like nobody's getting through this life without ever getting sick. You know that, right? Like there's no way to avoid it. 
Uh, No one's getting through this life without financial challenges, family conflict. We're all experiencing corrupt government. Has there ever been a government that wasn't corrupt in some way? Of course not. It's all just varying shades. Mental health. Well, Christians shouldn't have issues with mental health. Says who? We're people. We're human. We have weaknesses. We struggle in various ways. So there's all these different ways that we might encounter difficulty and obstacle in our life. But it's the way we respond to it that really matters. And James says, consider it all joy. So get happy when things are hard. And here's why. In verse 3, he explains to us why this is. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Another translation says endurance. And I like that better. You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So many people claim to have faith. I believe in God. I trust God. I love God. And and they have a faith in God, but you don't know if your faith is real until it's tested. You don't know if you know something until it's tested. Like, oh yeah, I know how to do geometry. And they put the test in front of you and they're like, calculate the vectors. And you're like, ah, zero. You think you know something, but until it's tested, you you really don't know. And James is like, when we have difficult times, those are the opportunities for our faith to really shine and become apparent, not only for us, uh, but for others. Faith is staying power. And, and I think it's important that we, if we say we love God, actually have staying power. That what we say we believe and what we say uh, is true. That it actually continues to exist on the other side of, of difficulty. I don't know about you guys, but I have actually learned way more in the valleys than I have on the mountaintops. On the mountaintops, when everything's good, I feel like I'm a winner. I feel like I'm, got, I'm in control. I feel like, yes, look, I'm at the pinnacle of my accomplishment. When I'm in the valley, I'm like, what did that person do to me? Why? Like, I've been set up. Like, I feel like it's somebody else's fault. And I, in those moments, I have to trust God. Hey, this isn't what I thought you would do. But here I am anyway, so what am I going to do with that? And in that moment, I have to say, God, I'm trusting you. I'm going to keep my eyes on you in the midst of the wind and the wave and the storm we just sang about. I'm going to keep my eyes on you and trust you through the valley. And then when I get to the next mountain peak, I'm not patting myself on the back. You see? Because I did it for myself. And so he goes on to say this in verse 4, Let steadfastness or endurance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, here we get a glimpse of what James wants for his, his early church audience, but also for us. He wants us to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He wants us to grow up. And I mean that spiritually. To grow up to maturity, right? If you're sitting with someone, just turn and say, James wants you to grow up. That was not very enthusiastic. I couldn't even hear you guys. I mean, this is your opportunity. James wants you to grow up. And that's exactly, he wants you, he wants you, and he wants me to grow up to be mature in the faith. It's really important to note this, that growing growing old is not the same as growing up. Take Write that down. Growing old is not the same as growing up. Maturity happens at different levels for different people. Wisdom, faith, everyone's on a different scale. And we shouldn't assume that just because we're getting old that we're becoming mature and growing strong in our faith. That's, that's not the case. Because the, the truth of the matter is every time we run into obstacles, difficulties, uh, difficult situations, those are opportunities for us. And in those moments, we will do one of two things. We're going to be pressured to either give up or to level up. And I'm telling you, in life, 
You either give up or you level up, okay? If you... I was helping my daughter um, just the other day. She was signing up for her, her grade 12 classes for high school. And I said she had a big list of courses available. I said, why don't you pick that one? And she said, oh, I can't because I don't have the prerequisite. You see, in order to do... Uh, this particular one, you have to do that one first. And until you pass Math 101, you, you can't go to Math 201 because you won't succeed. You don't have the foundation for it. Until you have Math 201, you can't do Math 301. And there are a lot of people that don't realize that like whether it's uh, their marriage, there are levels and stages to maturity in marriage and relationship. And, and if you're at level 201 and you want to get to 301, you've got to pass the test here. There's some stuff you've got to learn to handle here. And then by going through those difficult things, you level up to the next level. And this is the same with leadership, relationship, and with your faith. People want to have faith to move mountains, and they don't have faith to move their Bible off their nightstand and read it. Okay? It's... You either give up or you level up. That's why James is like, get excited. When things get hard, that's your moment. To, you're going to have to be, you're forced to make a decision. And you're either going to engage or walk away. And what you do in that moment actually reveals the level that your faith is at. So it's kind of a big deal. Um, so we want to go through it. In the, uh, in the Bible, they use this incredible analogy of the uh, refiner's fire. Anybody ever heard of it? We used to sing songs about it. Refiner's fire. And it's this idea of like when they refine metals, okay? They take a, they, they, they take a, I can't remember what it's called. There's a little, um, a crucible. Thank you. Uh, they have a crucible and they put the metals inside the crucible and it gets heated up to like 1400 degrees. Crazy. The metal all melts, but what happens in that process is the impurities and the different metals all separate into layers. And so when they cool it, they can remove the slag, they can get rid of all the junk, and then they'll put it back in the furnace and more stuff will separate and they'll continue this process until it's pure, 99.9% pure gold, silver, whatever. This is the process that the Scripture tells us God puts us through. He turns up the heat on our lives so that we can discover. You know, when I was first married, I thought I was pretty good at the marriage thing. And then something would come up in our relationship, and it would put the heat on me, and I realized, oh, i got some anger issues. Oh, i got some control issues. Stuff would begin to surface. And I either deal with it and allow God to remove it and level up, or I stay. And those moments we want to avoid are actually the moments that help us to move forward. We learn more in those moments of difficulty and testing than we ever do in the good days. So James, he's just a hard dude. He's just like, man, this is, get happy. This is your big chance. You can learn something right now. This is good. Then in verse 5, he changes directions, but it's all connected. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So, he says that we're to ask for wisdom. Wisdom is different than knowledge. They're, they're connected. See, knowledge is information. Knowledge is, okay, I know how that works. I know the right answer. I know what to do. But wisdom is the ability to take knowledge and connect it all in a way that works. I went to school with a guy, and um, he, he found that he could live really cheaply in college by eating pizza pockets every day for every meal. And it was, it was sound financially, uh, but not... Medically. <laughs> After six months, he had to have an organ removed. Because he lacked the wisdom to see that this shortcut was going to cost him in the long run. 
And wisdom is the ability to, to connect the dots, to take information that you know. And this is one of the things. Uh, young people, kids, teenagers, they go to school and they're absorbing knowledge, 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 knowledge. But then life, as you get older, you attain wisdom because you learn how that knowledge gets applied and connected. And young people have strength and knowledge and they need older people to obtain the wisdom. And anyway, it's a beautiful thing. He says to ask for wisdom. Do you know the Bible, the New Testament, there are really two specific things that we're to ask God for. One of them is... Thank you. Someone, come on, you guys. It's right on the screen. One of them is... Do you know what the other one is? The Holy Spirit. Jesus says, ask and your Father who gives liberally and without reproach. He, if your dad wouldn't give you a stone when you asked for a loaf of bread, how much more would the, the Father give you His Spirit? Who's also called, by the way, the Spirit of Wisdom. So God wants to, His Spirit to be in us, to lead and guide us, to help us to connect the dots of our lives, to help us to live out the Christian life in the way that we ought to. Verse 6, he continues to say this, Let him ask in faith, without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For, he says... That person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord because he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's park here for just a minute. James says that when, when we say we have faith in Jesus but don't act it out, we're unstable, we're double-minded, we're not consistent. And consistency, I've learned, is extremely, extremely important. Think about it from the angle of investing, Okay. A good investment advisor will give you this advice, I believe. I asked someone after the first service who's an investment professional, and he said, good advice. I said, you're going to sit down with an investment advisor professional who's going to say, let's come up with a plan, and the plan will be to invest X amount of dollars per week or month for 25 years, and we're going to put it across these investments, and no matter what happens in the market, you're going to continue to stick with the plan because it's a proven plan, and it's a wise plan, and if you stick with it, it will produce a result. You guys with me? The problem comes when we are moved by our emotions and either fear of losing our money or greed, we want to find a way to get it faster, fear or greed will drive us to move off the plan and we'll call our investment advisor and be like, sell all our stuff, quick! And they'll be like, no. And most financial advisors will tell you they are emotion managers. They're trying to get you to calm down and stick with the plan and be faithful. Because through the ups and the downs, the faithful consistency of following the plan will produce results. Are you with me? It's the exact same thing with your faith. If you love Jesus and are reading your Bible and everything's good, and the moment things get hard, you're like, I just don't know, and you're falling apart. You've got to be consistent, because otherwise you're like the waves of the sea. Have you ever watched the water? Waves just sort of surface everywhere. They're not predictable. You, you, can't, you can't know when a waves They just kind of pop up everywhere, totally unpredictable. And James says the Christian life should not be like that. We have faith in God, and we do the right thing, and we move in this direction. It's so simple. It's so simple for James. And, and he has this real... Um, you're going to see as we go through these ten weeks, there's an, he does not like hypocrisy. James is going to say, listen, don't you dare tell somebody to go and be warmed and filled, but not give them a bowl of soup if you have it. Don't you dare tell somebody that you love them and you're praying for them and they're blessed and then turn around and talk about them bad behind their back. True faith is consistent day in, day out. And it doesn't change and it continues to move forward in this way. So 
As I told you, James is he's a pretty he's a pretty tough dude. Let's move on. Verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. This has been my favorite passage for the last two years during this pandemic. I'm going to explain to you why in just a moment. But hold on to these words. Here's, here's what he says next. He's going to talk about the rich. And he says this, Because like the flower of the grass, he, the rich person, will pass away. And then it goes on to say, For the sun rises with scorching heat, withers the grass, and its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. I feel like this sounds depressing. No wonder it's his favorite verse for the pandemic. Next one. <laughs> so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Okay, now let's go back to the top where he summarizes everything that we just read. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Let me tell you why this is my favorite passage for the last couple of years. Because this passage tells me that not every person needs the same thing. Not every person needs the same thing. James is like, if there's somebody who's poor, who's sick, who has no power, no influence, who's at the bottom of the hierarchy, i got a word for that person. And the word is this, the last will be first. The word is this, God has got your back. The word is this, one day you'll have riches in heaven. Don't you worry, God's got you. So he's encouraging the person at the bottom, and he's warning the person at the top. The rich person who has money, power, control, influence, thinks they're all that. He's like, let me remind you, you need a little humility. Because one day all the stuff that you're trusting in, all the stuff that you feel good about, it's all going to be stripped away from you and you'll be standing equal with the person that you're looking down your nose at. Now here's the point of all this. Every person needs something different. Which is why, by the way, we need wisdom. Because you can't treat everybody the exact same way. My wife and I have four kids. Each of our children has a different personality. So we want the same standards of behavior for all of them, but we deal with them differently. One of them, you might have to yell at, be like, hey, stop doing that. And they're like, oh, and it shakes them out of their mindset. And they're like, you're right. And another kid, if you yell at them, they shut down and you have to come over and put your arm around them and explain it to them gently. Every child is different. Every person has different needs. Every person is in a different situation. Every person has a different backstory. So the same thing won't work for every person. Is this making sense? Which is partly why, which is partly why this passage has stood out to me so much in this time. When everybody in our culture and world seems to be dividing into camps, this group and that group, this position, that position, this political faction, this one, this ideology, that one. And the, and the problem is, is we don't see the value of the other person. We don't see the value of what they have to say or what they believe. And... Of course, what's happening is in our world, uh, governments, companies, everyone's using fear. Fear, by the way, is a wonderful motivator, right? If I told you a bomb was about to hit this room and then asked you to leave, you'd leave a lot faster than if I said, we have more guests coming in, would you please leave? Because fear will motivate you to get going, right? So fear is a wonderful motivator, but it has terrible side effects. It has terrible side effects. Because if you're trying to motivate people to do anything by fear, then all of a sudden, if you say, you need to be afraid, then they're, they're fearful. And when people are fearful, they're erratic and they're dangerous. You know this. People get trampled all the time. If, if I think, if you walk through the front door of my house and I think you're there to kill me, I'm going to pull out a gun. I don't have a gun. But if I had a gun, I might shoot you, right? 
because I'm afraid of the risk that you pose to me. And so, so what we do is we, we, we create groups and we say that group is a, a risk to you. And then people naturally go, well, I need to defend myself and I need to protect myself from the danger. And they're the problem or they're, and both sides are doing it. And everybody's being motivated by fear, not love. By the way, if there's one thing the church should not be motivated by is fear. There is no more cited command throughout the Bible than fear not. Over 365 times, one for every day of the year. We're not afraid. Take my life. I'm going to go be with Jesus in heaven forever. Take my stuff. God will give me more. Take my coat. Here, you want my other one? Like Christians are not supposed to be afraid because we know who has our back. And yet, it's, it's been awful because as a, as a pastor and as a leader, I find myself sometimes standing in between people I love who are throwing rocks at each other. And of course, you're standing in the middle getting hit and going, wait a second. Everyone's being motivated by fear. It's, I'm done my rant. <laughs> Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. I just, I just wish, I wish we could have the wisdom to see what each other needs. You know, if, if my parents came to me and pinned me on the ground with their boot on my neck and said, do it, there would be something inside of me that was like, no, I'm not doing it because you're making me do it. Fear, intimidation, greed. You know, as a pastor, my job isn't to get political. My job is to call out the sins of the heart and be like, guys, what are we doing here? And, and that's, that's what I'm trying to do. It's like, James is, look, every person needs to hear something different. Every person needs it. Some people need a whack. and Some people need someone to put their arm around them and cry. Do we have the wisdom to know? And if we don't, I suggest we ask God for it. And you'll discover that some of the, your actions and reactions are actually the wrong ones, and they're making the situation worse at every level. I told you to be hard. I told you to be quiet. I was right. I told you so. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to verse 13. Now James is going to uh, talk about, um, oh yeah, yeah, let's get to this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Almost missed this. This is so important. Why? Because when we experience difficulties and trials and we move through them, we grow stronger. Our faith is developed and tested, right? So we remain steadfast, endurance under trial. Next verse, 4, says, When he or she has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Did you know, this is so important for us to know. One day, each and every one of us will stand before God. And you will not stand before God for what? your member of parliament did, for what your friends did, for what your spouse did, for what your kids did. You will stand before God for what you did. And on that day, if you've been faithful to Him, and you've trusted and done your best to keep your eyes on Him, then you'll receive a reward. And that reward will be worth all of the, all of the difficulty that you've endured. i got a picture here. Last night we were watching the Olympics. Uh, with the kids, and we saw uh, Isabel Weedman, I think it is. Uh, she won the bronze medal, first medal uh, of the Canadian Winter Olympics for Canada. She won a bronze medal. She was so excited. And they were interviewing her, and she said, oh, you know, she was thanking her parents. And you, you know that for her to get to that place, to, to hold that achievement in her hands, there was 5 a.m. practices, there was puking on the side of the rink, there was exercise and nutrition training. She gave up parties and friend stuff in order to get there. And she would say it was worth it. And there's coming a day when you and I stand before God and there's a crown of life given to those who are faithful to Him. James is like, I want you to, 
I want you to remember this because otherwise you're going to be tempted to give up when it gets hard instead of leveling up. So now with that, we're going to turn to the last section, which is about temptation. So now James is going to address the other definition of the word temptation, which is the one that you and I would be most familiar with when we're enticed to sin. And we're going to learn a few really key things about temptation. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God may allow difficult circumstances to come into your life that are hard, He will allow those things. But He is not tempting you to sin. He is not trying to harm you. Your Father is good. So this is just really important for us to understand. The next verse He says, But each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by his own desire. We all have a sin nature within us. There is a desire within us to to have what we want, to cut corners, to to be angry, to lust, greed, all of those things are inside of each and every person. It's amazing how we, as humans, want to always categorize as like, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. Right? Like, we, the good, democratic, free people, them, the Nazis who killed and did all... Like, we do that. We, so it's like, we're not them, we're us. But the people that were there that did horrific things were people with the same nature as us who got caught up and twisted up and did things. And likewise, there are a lot of us who say, I would never do that. And then we end up five years later doing the very thing we said we wouldn't do. You with me? Just be aware of that. Okay? That we can be lured and enticed to do things we ought not to do by our own desires. Next verse, he says this. This is really cool. James is actually going to show us how sin works. And I wish I could spend an entire message on this, but I'm going to try to do it in a few minutes. When desire, those sinful desires are natural in us, but when that desire has conceived, notice this word, when a woman is is impregnated, it's called conception. And it means a seed has been planted in her womb, and that seed will grow to become a child, a living a living person, right? It'll grow into another person. So there's this conception that happens, and, and then what happens is he says sin works that way. Sin can start as an idea or a thought, and it lands in fertile ground in our heart, and it conceives, and it starts to grow. The thing about it is, like, nobody knows, right? When you're first pregnant, nobody knows a woman's pregnant until eventually it starts to show. You're like, ah, I think there's something going on there, but don't say anything. I'm warning you. Don't say anything too early. It could go sideways, okay? But eventually you start to see that something's there, and then you know something's there because it gives, she gives birth. And, and something arrives on the scene. And he's saying sin works just like this. Starts small, starts invisible, but if it's allowed to grow, it produces, and eventually it becomes evident, and eventually it produces sinful behavior, and when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. This actually reminds me a lot of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you say it's wrong to murder, and you're right, but he says, I say, if you're angry at your brother, you've committed murder. And everyone in the crowd's like, oh no, we're doomed. Because who hasn't been mad at their brother? I know I I have. And and so everyone's terrified, but Jesus is making a point that murder starts as a little anger seed in your heart that's unchecked, unplucked, and it grows and grows and grows, and then it turns into a fist fight, and eventually it turns to a knife or a gun, and it turns to murder. And so it's progressive. It grows. gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. That's why, as Christians, we ought to be aware. We go, we make excuses for our sins. We go, oh, it's us, not a big deal, just a little thing. 
We don't realize how little things grow slowly in our hearts and eventually become evident and harm us and our families because it grows into something so much bigger. Is that making sense? So he says in the next verse, So do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Satan wants these seeds of sin and doubt to grow in your heart and produce sin and death. But God has a a good plan for you and for me. This is the good news. We're going to end on some good news. You with me? All right. Got one person with me. All right. The good news is this, that God is planting good seeds in us. And every perfect gift is from above. Notice what he says next. He says, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow. God is consistent. His love for us, His plan for us is consistent. We'll finish on verse 18, and we'll pick it up next week. Of His own will, He... And this is this birthing language again. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruit, a first crop of His creatures. So what James is saying, sin wants to have your heart, and it wants to grow and bring death and destruction into the world. Can you guys agree with that? That's true. That's, that's the plan. God has a different plan. He wants to put His Spirit in us, His wisdom, His love in us. And those are seeds, too, that grow. And His kingdom grows in our hearts and then begins to produce out of us a harvest of of love, goodness, faithfulness, peace, kindness. And these things are produced out of us as the right seeds are planted and grown in us. And so we have a task. And our task is to attend the garden. And our task is to be consistent with our eyes on Him. And to be faithful each and every day. To not lose hope. To not lose our faith. Right? That five years from now, we're still standing in our faith. Stronger, more pure than we were. That's the goal that James is after. So we're going to pick that up next week. Let me pray for us. And Todd's going to come up and close us out with some announcements. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this, these words of James. Who was so impacted by your resurrection. And so impacted that he would call you Lord and worship you as God. And Lord, I I pray that we, uh, as those who are reading these words and, and listening to them, that we would submit our lives to you. That we would place our faith and trust in Jesus and his words so that our hearts and lives would be transformed and ultimately the world would be transformed through us. Help us. We pray for wisdom today, Lord. We pray that your spirit would speak to us in the seven days ahead as we, between this message and next, would you show us how we're to speak to, love, correct, challenge and encourage those around us in the right way, at the right time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Well, that wraps up for Ms. Here at Pathway. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. If you're looking for prayer or care, please visit us at pathwaylife.com slash care. And keep up with us on all of our socials, facebook.com slash pathwaylife, instagram.com slash pathwaylifechurch, and of course, just our website at www.pathwaylife.com. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon.